HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. This week, we bring you stories about food and drink in the dead of winter. The inspiration for this episode struck while my co-host Kat and I were visiting Kane Vineyard and Winery in the Napa Valley last month. We spent some time among the grapevines at an important point in their life cycle. Here's Kat with the story. Close your eyes and picture yourself driving up Highway 128 through California's wine country. You pass through the small town of San Helena and turn on a two-small-lane road that winds its way up through the Mayacamas Mountains. You arrive at Cane Winery, tucked high in the hills. You're probably picturing a lush vineyard, trellises heavy with fruit. But it's winter, so the vines are bare. We're here to see Chris Howell, Cane's winemaker. The most important job in the entire vineyard year is pruning the grapevine. Pruning is the process of removing the previous year's growth so the vines don't produce more fruit than the plant can support. Pruning the grapevine will form it not just for this year, but for next year, the year after that. And in order to think of this, you have to have people who've been there and done there and lived that all this time. Chris introduces us to Ashley Anderson Bennett, the associate vineyard manager. Yeah, this is my favorite time of year. It's um, the vines are dormant, so they're not growing right now. They The shoots have all lignified, so they've all gone woody. You just started pruning. When? last Thursday, so just a couple of days ago, and we've really only pruned for a day, not even a day and a half, because right now it's starting to drizzle, and we don't prune in the rain because of um, fungal diseases. Um, and the spores come in on the winter rains, and they land on the fresh uh, cuts, the fresh pruning wounds, and then they'll infect the vine. On Thursday, we had a break in the rain, and it was actually a sunny day, and even then when we were making our cuts, not on every vine and not every cut, but many of them were weeping. That means the vines were releasing sap. What do you think that will mean for them to be weeping early? When they're weeping, that means they can also push out some, uh, an infection that might land, a spore that might land. So I, I always 
like to see that at this time of year and right now it doesn't worry me at all if um if it'd been really if this was in middle of february and it'd been really warm and everything was weeping then i'd be worried about an early bud break bud break is exactly what it sounds like the first buds begin to peek out of the vines restarting photosynthesis if it happens too early it can spell trouble Mostly the worry is frost. If your vines start to grow, start to bud out early, then there's a more, more of a chance to get some cold weather when you have green tissue out. And if you do get frost, uh, if the temperature goes below 32 degrees and you have the green tissue, then it can kind of burn it. And then those buds won't be viable this year. Those little shoots won't be viable this year. As the vineyardists prune through the winter, they leave their cuttings behind. What do you do with the cuttings? We chop them up and they go back into the soil. It's cold, but it's wet and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. Soil is truly the foundation of wine. So growing grapes on a steep hillside presents a challenge. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, mostly erosion control because we need to keep the soil where it is. So we get a lot of rain. We can get a lot of rain during the wintertime and we have to keep the soil where it is and the roots of the plants help do that. The life of the soil is essential, but first you've got to have it. On a hillside, on a hillside, you're going to lose it, right? It's always going downhill. As frustrating as that is, we love hillside vineyards, and yet they're always at risk. But also, having these plants here growing those roots helps keep the soil alive and vibrant and full of all kinds of microorganisms. And I believe, we believe, that the healthier the soil healthier the vines are going to be. There is something magical about standing in the middle of a mountainside vineyard in California winter. With a cursory glance, you may think there's not much going on. The vines are dormant and the vineyardists work quietly. There are only the sounds of a small radio and the occasional bark from one of the vineyard dogs. But soon you realize an incredibly complex process is taking place all around you as these vines fortify themselves to shoot to life once the earth tilts back towards the sun. While the grapevines are taking a break this season, it's becoming more popular for humans to take one, too. That is, a break from booze. Kevin Wheeler has the story on all things dry January. The start of a new year signifies countless possibilities. New friends, new experiences, perhaps a new job. Many people also seek to make new and better lifestyle choices, often by drinking less. That's the idea behind Dry January, a commitment to stay away from alcohol over the first and sometimes second month of the year. It's also a great time to explore the burgeoning world of non-alcoholic cocktails. Julia Bainbridge is a writer and podcast producer who has written extensively about these drinks. She has a book about non-alcoholic cocktails that's coming out in 2020, but she also has the experience of going through periods of abstinence. Dry January comes after the indulgences of the winter holidays. You know, people are making resolutions they want to reset, right, or maybe to lose weight. And I love that it's growing in popularity so that people feel encouraged to satisfy their curiosity over what it feels like to take a break, right? Like, I, I think people are becoming more mindful about their alcohol consumption these days. But for Julia herself, dry January's brief passing hasn't always worked or held appeal. As for me, I have a tricky relationship with alcohol, and the way I've learned to manage that is to take 
chunks of time off them, more like six months here, nine months there. And usually those periods, too, uh, come after bouts of over-drinking. Taking time off from drinking can be motivated by generalized goals for a better lifestyle or by something very specific. Right now, for instance, Julia says she's not drinking because, among other things, she's thinking about a career change, and alcohol would only serve to take her heart and mind out of that process. Luckily for me, there's never been a better time to be a non-drinker. At a time when this is more a part of the conversation, at a time when bartenders are really devoting more energy to developing really balanced, thoughtful, non-alcoholic drinks. And so it's sort of um, serendipitous. We live in a time where bartenders are moving past the sugar bombs of syrup and soda that typified non-alcoholic drinks of the past. Instead, some innovators are using fresh juices, herbs, and even kombucha. Now more than ever, seasonality actually matters when making a non-alcoholic cocktail. So you've got juices, you've got um, a lot of fresh produce uh, in these drinks. And you could argue that it's even more important for non-alcoholic cocktails because you don't have a spirit to work with. And so the, you know, flavor and aroma of um, those fruits and vegetables at times are more pronounced in um, non-alcoholic drinks. Some of these sensibilities are on display at two of Julia's favorite places to drink non-alcoholic cocktails. Atera, a two-star Michelin restaurant in Tribeca, and Agern, a new Nordic restaurant that opened in Grand Central Station in 2016. At Agern, bartenders are experimenting with whey, celery, coriander, and dill to elevate their non-alcoholic concoctions from the level of Shirley Temple's. While Julia will not specifically address seasonality in her upcoming book, she does believe a good non-alcoholic cocktail for wintertime could easily be culled from the hot drink canon. I think something like a hot apple cider um, it, that's already not a particularly spiritful drink, so I think that's sort of easy to take into the non-elf realm, right? So if you wanted it to be kind of like a bourbon and hot apple cider, you could, to, to get at those same flavors, it's like you could cook apple cider with some maple syrup and a little vanilla and maybe nutmeg, and you get that those same kind of barrel tones that sort of come through and have a really nice drink. Julia believes that we're seeing some of these new, nice, non-alcoholic drinks because more drinkers and would-be drinkers are starting to care more about their health and the negative effects of alcohol. Certainly we see that more bartenders are carving out space for thoughtful, complex, non-alcoholic mixed drinks on their menus, and that's because their customers increasingly, I think, more attuned to wellness, demand it, and like juice won't cut it anymore. If you decide that juice won't cut it anymore either, and you decide to include some non-alcoholic cocktails as a part of your dry January or dry winter at this point, Try not to use the word mocktail. We all kind of cringe at that word, right? Also, I think it's, you know, the idea that these drinks are mocking, you know, are trying to be cocktails. I kind of think of it differently. Like, uh, these drinks are fully formed in their own rights, and they're not all trying to be just like a no-groni or an N.A. mojito or, you know, mimicking something that exists in the alcoholic canon, you know? Because this realm of mixology is relatively new, it's difficult to categorize in the same way one might with more traditional alcoholic drinks, whose base spirits lend themselves to certain flavors and categorization. But don't be surprised if a canon of non-alcoholic drinks emerges in years to come. And now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with more stories about the dead of winter.
This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. We turn now to Dylan Hoyer to hear the story of the people who deliver much of our food in New York City, rain, shine, or snow. At this time of year, we tend to indulge our desire to order in. In New York City, all it takes is a few taps on your phone and dinner will be on its way to your doorstep. But the ease of this process can erase the effort behind it. Staring at the arrival times on our screens, we are distracted from the journey delivery workers must make through the cold, often on their bicycles. Especially when you got temperatures dropping below freezing, every degree counts when it comes to how long you can physically stay exposed outside. That's Jason Woody. He's been a delivery worker for five years and is on the board of the Bicycle Workers Advocacy Project. In the winter, Jason gets a higher volume of orders, but the uptick in business is a double-edged sword. The number one challenge in the wintertime is staying healthy because with the exposure to the cold, if you can manage not to lose a finger to the cold, you still might catch the flu. I really think companies could do a better job of making sure that we stay healthy because it helps everybody. I can do more work if I'm healthy. The challenges brought on by the cold weather reveal deeper issues with delivery workers' employment conditions. Low temperatures and bad road conditions increase the risk of getting sick or injured. This puts delivery workers in a vulnerable position since they're not usually entitled to health insurance or workers' compensation. That's because restaurants and other delivery companies label their bike workers as independent contractors rather than hiring them as full-time employees. This shifts a great deal of responsibility from the employer to the employees. So many of us are living paycheck to paycheck, and it literally comes down to, yes, I know I broke my ankle yesterday, but if I don't work today, I'm not going to be able to eat tomorrow. So, like, a lot of guys have unfortunately taken it on as a badge of honor to kind of work while injured rather than taking the time to be home, recuperate, rest properly, and then come back to work. Exasperation within this industry has recently boiled up in the debate over electric bikes. E-bikes are preferred by many delivery workers but have long been banned in New York City. Although de Blasio's administration has loosened restrictions on some electric bikes, The model many delivery workers have chosen to work with remains illegal, and delivery workers continue to be subject to fines and the seizure of their property. Dr. Doe Lee has been following the policy's enforcement. He's an academic who wrote his PhD dissertation on the rights of delivery workers. One of the faulty assumptions by Mayor de Blasio in the city on a crackdown on uh, worker electric bikes, their assumption was that the restaurants provided the electric bikes. Well, In reality, we found that well over 90% of the workers provide their own bicycle or e-bike. And so if you're cracking down on this, that you're cracking down on workers. Shaoding Chen has been a bike courier on and off for 11 years. He doesn't currently ride an electric bike, 
but believes one would allow him more control over the road and his own safety. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, normal bike delay workers will experience fatigue. And it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to slip or slide. Dr. Doley found that for many delivery workers, electric bikes are more than just a preference. They're a necessity. There's assumptions that you do it when you're young and you're fit and you like to bike. And that accurately describes a lot of the English-speaking, native-born workers. But a lot of the immigrant workers that we spoke with, especially like the Chinese workers, their median age is 46 years old. And so we're talking about workers who are elderly, who are in the 50s and even 60s sometimes. And so to expect these workers who have been doing this job for 10, 15, 20 years, and you get into car crashes, you accumulate injuries, you accumulate occupational health problems. To expect them to do that without an electrical assistance is to basically say to get another job. The challenging employment conditions faced by New York's 50,000 delivery workers remains largely unacknowledged by both private companies and policymakers. It's difficult for them to make career change. And if any change has happened, they still deserve to be communicated with by the city administrators. Jason and Xiaodang participate in advocacy organizations, which strive to bring people together in pursuit of healthcare and higher pay. Companies feel that bikers are expendable, and it's one of the things we've been trying to fight against. As consumers, our encounters with delivery workers are limited to a brief handoff before our doors close and messengers get back on their bikes. But even when we forgo the frills of eating out, we are taking part in the service industry. And by taking part in this industry, we have a chance to contribute to our server's working conditions. That includes delivery workers. Learn more about how you can help by following Bikers Public Project and Bicycle Workers Advocacy Project on Facebook. That's why I wanted to join, because myself as an immigrant delivery worker faced many problems that I could not find a voice until I started volunteering for Biking Public Project. For our final story this week, Nina Medvinskaya takes a look at a niche product that's raising the bar for an oft-overlooked ingredient. Water. It's the elixir of our lives and something that no human can live without. We drink it plain or flavor it in countless ways. We cook and clean with it. And we even transform its state by heating it to the point of evaporation or freezing it until it turns to ice. In fact, ice is something we could count on finding in most American freezers. Whether it's a bag of crushed ice from the deli, or it's taking shape in one of those ubiquitous trays. And no matter how health savvy we are, most likely we aren't too concerned about what kind of water our ice is made from. Yet a determined businessman believes it's time we start taking our ice a bit more seriously. Well, actually, a lot more seriously. My name is Roberto Sequeira, and I am the founder of the Gloss Luxury Ice Company. Mr. Sequeira thinks that if you're drinking top-shelf liquor, then you'd better be pairing it with top-shelf ice. His company, Gloss Luxury Ice, is based in California, and it offers consumers individually carved pieces of ice purified of minerals, additives, and other pollutants, but accompanied with a hefty price tag. The ice costs $325 for the pack of 50 that it's sold in. That's $6.50 per cube. The idea was to exhaust all things that consumers use and, and surround themselves with. Restaurants are beginning to name their 
source of beef and salmon and, and uh, mustards, you name it. But for some reason, we couldn't explain why ice was overlooked the world over. There are ice boxes. They just simply said ice. Mr. Sakita's goal is to address the inconsistencies in the product by creating ice that is completely free of impurities. For even in safe drinking water, chemicals like chlorine and fluoride are usually added to kill bacteria and pathogens. At one point in the history of modern civilization, the quality of the ice was dependent on the quality of the lake from which it was harvested. And as man has increased its footprint on the globe, those sort of pristine, raw sources became less and less and less. Although Gloss Luxury Ice's product comes with several perks, such as a slower melting rate, with some cubes taking as long as 40 minutes to fully melt, as well as a crystal clear clarity in its ice cubes, the company mainly prides itself on containing absolutely no contaminants so that the taste of a high-quality drink won't be impacted by any superfluous flavors. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. Unlike traditional ice or ice molds that may be dependent on the local source water, we would have to bring no smell and no taste to the equation so that the consumer would enjoy the true spirit of whatever he or she was drinking. And that's important because I believe that it was about achieving the zenith that we call the perfect serve. Mr. Sagira is of the mind that if people are investing in their spirits, then they should be aware of everything that goes into their drink and potentially affects its taste. Although he is passionate about his product, he is aware that it's not something that most people would invest in. We are not insensitive or ignorant to the fact that many people decide that DIY is the way to go. And I think that that's okay. If you have more time than means, then sure, right? But we offer a turnkey solution to hospitality accounts and consumers around the world. And it's something that I think we're proud of. So whether you're fine continuing with your casual ice runs, or you've been looking for a way to really enhance your on-the-rocks drinking experience, ice is an ingredient that's impossible to avoid. And now that you know luxury is an option, you may think twice the next time you casually drop a cube into your drink. If you enjoyed this piece about luxury ice, check out Meet and 3, Episode 5, Water Woes. It features a water sommelier, Dave Arnold's favorite spring, and some unsettling news about what might be lurking in your tap water. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for another Meet and 3 next Friday. We're going to be getting into the Valentine's Day spirit by looking at some of the less glamorous aspects of the holiday that many people love to hate. Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer, Kat Johnson, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting this week. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Nina Medvinskaya. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York State Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. <laughs>